scripture passage for today comes from the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 13 through 21. Hear now the word of God. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be judge or arbitrator over you? And Jesus said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then Jesus told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I know, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Open our hearts and minds, O God, to the word just read and the words to come, that they might point to you, Jesus, the Christ, the word made flesh. Amen. One of the fears that I carry with me wherever I go is that I'm going to get to the end of life and somehow miss one of the most important things rather than hearing from God, well done, good and faithful servant, God will say to me, you fool, time's up and now you've missed it. Fool is a strong word. When we think of a fool, we think of someone who spits into the wind or someone who saws off the branch that they're sitting on. A fool is also someone who doesn't pay attention to how the world works and when someone else tries to help them make these connections, the fool refuses to listen. The old adage is, fools are often in error, but never in doubt. Given these definitions, I think few of us would consider ourselves a fool. By all practical accounts, the farmer doesn't look foolish either. He was a good farmer. He clearly knew his trade and was able to make the most out of the right amount of rain and sunshine for his crops. The farmer appears to be a hard worker, as all good farmers are, and he hasn't gained his abundance by deceit or exploitation, and yet God calls him foolish. He's a good man, living a good life. How did he get it so wrong? It causes me to ask, how am I like that farmer? How am I getting it wrong? How about you? Chapter 12 in the Gospel of Luke begins by telling us that thousands of people were pressing in to hear Jesus, who was doing some important teaching. Jesus paused to take a breath or to take a drink of water when some guy in the crowd elbows his way up to the front and says, hey, Jesus, make my brother share the family inheritance with me. 
In today's world, he's a heckler in the audience of a stand-up routine. Jesus dismisses the man and says to us, says to us, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Every kind of greed. Sometimes I think I might not pay enough attention to greed in my life because I tend to put it in this category that is large and overt, kind of like John D. Rockefeller, who at one point, as one man, was reported to have 1% of our nation's wealth. When a reporter asked him how much wealth would finally be enough, he replied, just a little bit more. It's hard to imagine not being satisfied with that kind of wealth. So I let myself off the hook and say, well, I'm not that greedy. I recently read a book called Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI, which describes about another kind of greed. David Grand wrote about the history of the Osage tribe who had been driven from their lands in Kansas onto a rocky, presumably worthless reservation in northeastern Oklahoma. Decades later, they discovered that this land was sitting on some of the largest oil deposits in the United States. In the early 20th century, each member of the tribal role began receiving a quarterly check from the prospectors who wanted to obtain oil from their land. The amount was initially only a few dollars, but over time, as more oil was tapped, the dividends grew into the hundreds, then the thousands. In 1923 alone, the tribe took in more than $30 million, the equivalent today of $400 million in one year. The Osage were considered the wealthiest people per capita in the world. Then, tragically, one by one, they were shot, poisoned, and dying other, under, other mysterious causes. The motivating factor was greed. Head rights to oil and all of the wealth that it provided were stolen murder for money. It's easy to wag a finger at that kind of greed, right? Killing for money or, or grasping for more when you already have millions. But greed shows up in many ways. Did you ever read The Rainbow Fish to your kids or grandkids? It was published 30 years ago, the same year my oldest daughter was born, so it was a staple in our home. The story begins like this. A long way out in the deep blue sea, there lived a fish. Not just an ordinary fish, but the most beautiful fish in the entire ocean. His scales were every shade of blue and green and purple with sparkling silver shades among them. The other fish were amazed at his beauty. They invited him to play with them but he just glided by, proud and silent, enjoying the attention as his scales shimmered. One day, a small, rather plain blue fish swam up to Rainbow Fish and asked for just one little shiny scale. After all, he was covered in them. Rainbow Fish was incensed that this little fish would dare to ask him for one of his special scales. The little fish swam away, feeling hurt and ashamed, and he shared what happened with his friends. 
After that, Rainbow Fish was no longer invited to play with the other fish, nor did they admire him anymore. Rainbow Fish was alone with all of his shining scales, just like the farmer was alone with his overflowing barns. Greed isolates us. It's a barrier that separates us from seeing others while focusing all of our attention on ourselves. It isn't just revealed in money or personal effects. It can also show up in how we use our time or in our collection of stuff. Greed says it's mine, mine, mine with fists clenched, holding on so tight that no one else can have any of whatever it is that we have claimed for ourselves. It turns out the way we make purchases and handle our money and material possessions can often be traced to our childhood experiences. In the book, The Good and Beautiful Life, that we read as a congregation a couple of years ago, the author James Bryan Smith gave us an example. Susie Orman, the popular financial expert, remembers when her father's business caught on fire. As a little girl, she watched her father running into the burning building, grabbing the hot metal cash register and running back out. He fell to the ground, writhing in pain from scorched and seared hands. She was too young to process it all then, but a narrative emerged. Money is very valuable, worth endangering your life for. Therefore, you must never be careless with money. I wonder what experiences from your childhood have shaped your ideas about money and material goods. Now that could be some interesting brunch conversation for today. For me, my dad was born in 1937 in rural Minnesota. He was one of 17 kids, 17. Same parents, no twins, no multiple births. They lived on a farm and never, as you might imagine, had enough money or food for all of those mouths to feed. So my brother and I were shaped with a keen appreciation for food and for any item that we possessed. The message that was ingrained in us was this, you don't waste what you have and you take good care of your things because they have to last. Now occasionally we might have a little spending money that we could buy something special which would give this brief burst of pleasure but I became aware how quickly that happiness wore off. I was never under any false illusion that money or stuff would make me happy. If I had to rely on what money could provide for happiness, I was destined for a life of misery. So my narrative protect me, protected me from the greed of accumulating stuff, but there is still scarcity woven into my story if I share Will I have enough for me? Contrast that to the childhood experience of Ralph, who grew up on Vancouver Island in Western Canada. He lived on the Pacific Ocean, and each year there was a large salmon run. He and his brothers looked forward every year to going out on the boat and catching fish with their dad, which they needed for food for the winter. Once, when they were teenagers, they loaded their boat with fish in only a few short hours. 
The boys could hardly wait to get the fish off the boat so they could go out and get more. Ralph's father informed the boys that they were finished. The boys knew that there were many more fish to be caught, and when they objected, their dad said, we have enough already. We must leave some for others. They spent the next two days helping other people mend their nets so that they too could have enough. The greedy farmer seemed to be blind to anyone but himself, and like the rainbow fish, he was all alone. He was isolated from God and from others. The farmer had a mindset that said, my crops, my barn, my grain, my goods, my soul. He was rich with stuff, but dirt poor in relationships. A wise friend of mine said, don't settle for less while accumulating more. The farmer missed it, and now his life is over. There's nothing like death to clarify what really matters. And since we are all here today, that means that there's still time for us. This parable, along with many stories from our lives and from characters like Ebenezer Scrooge, Mr. Potter, and the Grinch, remind us over and over again that money, possessions, and our time are not to be hoarded. And just to be clear, the problem is not really posed by the size of the harvest, but rather on the insistence of gathering it all and storing it all up for our own use. Any amount that is greedily gathered and kept for oneself is missing the blessing in life. It reminds me of an article I read a few years ago about a, fa a family from Iran who had moved to California in 1972. The father was a mechanical engineer who grew up with very few material possessions. His daughter remembers watching him meticulously clean and repair just about everything they owned, be it a radio, a coat, or a blender. His attention to detail extended particularly to cars. No matter what vehicle they owned, it was always kept in pristine condition inside and out. In 1978, when his daughter was 13 years old, he decided to sell their Chrysler LeBaron. As a trusted advisor on all things American, it was up to his daughter to write the ad for the penny saver. Her father wanted to sell the car for $1,000. She shrewdly convinced her dad to list the car for $1,200 if he wanted to get $1,000. So a parade of potential buyers came to their condo. The daughter made sure that she was always there in her perfect valley girl English to put people at ease, mitigating her father's thick Persian accent. Well, one evening, a man showed up with his two young daughters, and he decided to buy the car, and he said he'd be back the next day with the money. As promised, he returned the next day again with his two daughters and with $1,200 in cash. Her father took the money and thanked the man, and then he said, as he peeled off two $100 bills and handed them back, please take these for your beautiful daughters. Take them to Disneyland and buy them whatever they want. The man looked confused almost annoyed, like he was being pranked. 
her father pressed the money into his hands and said, you must please take your daughters to Disneyland. The girls began to squeal with delight. The man paused for a moment, and then he pulled her father in for a big bear hug. As they drove away, you could see the little girls waving excitedly from the back seat. That evening, her father couldn't have been happier. He had gotten exactly what he needed, and his daughter learned a lesson that she still carries with her for 44 years. When you have what you need, use the rest to bring joy to someone else. It's that simple, but sometimes it's not that easy. Because of the insidious nature of greed, we really can't go it alone like the farmer. We need to listen to God. We need accountability, friends. Sometimes we need a counselor to unravel some of our childhood messages. Rainbow fish needed the wise octopus who advised him to give a glittering scale to each of the other fish, to which Rainbow Fish immediately responded, I can't. He wondered to himself, how could he ever be happy without all of his beautiful shining scales? And then Rainbow Fish did what perhaps we might need to do. He made one little movement forward towards generosity. He gave away only one very, very small shimmering scale to one little fish, hoping that he wouldn't miss it too much. Well, a rather peculiar feeling came over Rainbow Fish as he watched this little fish joyfully swimming back and forth with his new scale glittering in the water, a feeling he had never felt before. He savored that moment and tucked it away in his heart. Soon, word got out, and one by one, rainbow fish shared his precious scales. How much is enough? I don't know. Each person has to decide that for himself or herself, with God's help, of course, and with an awareness of the people around us. But for rainbow fish, the more he gave away, the more delighted he became.